Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. It is Hardline on News Radio 930 WBEN. Joe Beamer, Brenda Alacy. Brenda is off this week as she recovers from surgery. We wish her a speedy recovery. Congressman Chris Jacobs joins us, and you heard GOP Chair Nick Langworthy talking in the last segment about the southern border and really the mess that has become of the southern border over the last few months. And here, with firsthand uh, just coming back from the southern border is Congressman Chris Jacobs. Uh, Congressman, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining us this Sunday morning. Uh, You just returned from the southern border, and what did you see while you were down there? What are the conditions right now uh, where you were? Yeah, I can tell you, you know, I went down to the southern border uh, about a year ago, uh, and, um, and, and toured down uh, about a year ago. And I can tell you, um, I, and one reason I wanted to go down was see the difference. And it, there is such a stark difference from a uh, uh, relatively calm and controlled environment of a year uh, or so ago to now. Uh, we clearly have a serious, serious crisis um, at the southern border now. Uh, unprecedented levels. It's a, both a humanitarian crisis and a, a national security, domestic security crisis. Uh, and all citizens in the United States should uh, be concerned about this. Uh, so I uh, learned a great deal in, in the time I was there. I went down to, uh, uh, I flew in the San Antonio area. of uh, So it was uh, Eagle Pass and the Del Rio sector of, of the border area. And um, it, uh, you know, this year, uh, just, it, we have the highest level of border entries that we've had in 15 years. I mean, in March, there was 172,000 illegal entries uh, of people that were interdicted uh, in March alone. Uh, that is, you know, we just haven't seen that in decades. And, uh, you know, in my mind, it's a direct result of um, the uh, reckless decisions that the Biden administration has made uh, reversing uh policies just because they were instituted by Donald Trump's administration. Uh, But they were the right policies and they were incredibly effective and reversing them without anything to replace them. uh, The result is stark. Uh, We have people pouring over the border. Uh, uh, Local communities are ravaged uh, down there. Uh, Border patrol is um, is overwhelmed. Uh, So you know, I, I toured detention facilities uh, where we saw, you know, young people sleeping on floors with uh, basically 
uh, you know, uh, foil on their as a, a blanket. And uh, uh, we saw, you know, we went to the border uh, right next to the Rio Grande and uh, had a meeting with local sheriffs who, t- you know, told personal stories of what they're dealing with, why we were sitting there. We saw somebody jump into the water and just swim across the river into America. So uh, people are doing it uh, kind of brazenly uh, because they know there's very little consequence uh, to to what they're doing. Uh, So I would just say, you know, we certainly uh, many, even though the Biden and Harris administration has refused to call this a crisis and Nancy Pelosi said uh, last week that Biden's got this under control, it's all going well, um, and they're living in denial. uh, and we've certainly a lot of us seen pictures of uh, children that are in, in uh, kind of plexiglass cages and things. And it's heart wrenching to see that. I just would like to mention it's it's much more than just children that that are coming over, uh, because the whole process now uh, is con- of, of getting over the border is coming uh, through only comes through the uh, Mexican drug cartels. Uh, and they are getting paid millions a day. Uh, I think it's about $5,000 for bringing one person over. Um, so this sector alone, they determine that they make, the cartels make about $11 million a week trafficking people over. But they make, the cartels make more the worse the person is. So the more hardened the criminal, uh, they make more. So there are a lot of serious criminals coming over, sex traffickers, and um, people uh, last, I think last week, two Yemenites were captured that were on the terrorist watch list. And I was talking to one Border Patrol agent who said to me, that is not an outlier. Uh, I can tell you right now, it's, it's not a matter of if, but when a terrorist act happens by um, individuals that are coming over the border right now, a new sleeper cell formed and so forth. So um, this is uh, a significant burden uh, for those along the border who are dealing with this right now, I, I talked to one sheriff who said in his small county alone, they had 27 high-speed chases and three deaths in just one week uh, dealing with this issue. But um, this is going to have national consequence because uh, these people coming across are not remaining just along the border. They're coming up in, into the heartland of our country. And certainly we've always known the New York State has been a magnet because of the significant benefits um, uh, they they provide, and um, uh, so uh, we we need one reason I went was certainly to uh, be better informed myself as a policymaker, but also because I believe um, the media and the Biden administration are trying to kind of hide this. We want to shine a light. It, it, this is very important for the safety and security of our country, and and that's why. Uh, we all need to talk about it, and that's why I'm also um, uh, grateful that you allowed me to come on today. Yeah, and Congressman, you know, you mentioned the policies that President Biden overturned when he took office, and those policies, a lot of Trump policies that he overturned when it comes to the southern border, he did without visiting, right? He has not been to the southern border since his inauguration. That, that's, you know, that's what we've, we've stated, you know, and, and with all due respect, the President of the United States, I know he's busy, but... Um, you know, I think if a hurricane hit, he'd probably be inclined to go down. Well, we have far more than that as far as damage to, to our nation. So he should go. And, I mean, he, he appointed, uh, you know, there was fanfare that he appointed uh, Vice President Harris to, to solve this problem. At a minimum, she should go. <laughs> but she hasn't even gone. So 
and I think the Homeland Security Director finally went down, but there was no press allowed for her visit or his visit. So uh, I, I and I will say this is on the border, a bipartisan issue. Uh, a, a local mayor down there uh, is pleading uh, for a border wall to be built along the, the, the border, the 50 miles of the border uh, in, in his area. Uh, we met with local sheriffs and city mayor, uh, town of uh, city mayors in, in these uh, smaller cities along the border, and it was bipartisan. And I will tell you, almost every one of them are, were of Mexican descent and first or second generation immigrate, immigrants. Uh, and so they were pro-immigration. Just they, they said, do it like we did, our families did, do it legally. That's how it's done. That's how it needs to be done. We are a nation of immigrants, but we are a nation of laws. Uh, so uh, we, we right now are in a serious, serious problem. Uh, and, you know, we're, we're talking about thousands and thousands of people coming over. Uh, we are also we are enabling the cartels to uh, to traffic human beings, to um, sexually abuse young people. And frankly, it's in a way they're enslaving some of these people because as I mentioned, 5000 or more dollars to come over. If you can't pay up front, then you go into the American, uh, into the U.S., and you're going to owe that, and you're going to be kind of an indentured servant or slave. And uh, certainly a lot of these, when we hear about young people, they're, they're not five years old. They're 15, 16, 17 years old. And, you know, what one of the Border Patrol agents told me is this is the next generation of uh, the gang members who are going to come up in MS-13s and things. Uh, and some of them don't want to be involved, but they have to pay back the money they owe to the cartels to get over the border. So uh, the cartels really are evil, evil entities. Uh, they control a lot of uh, the Mexican country, not the government. They control the company, the country. Uh, they are equipped with technology, and, and they, they can match any military, um, almost ours, but they can certainly match a local sheriff. And uh, it, it was just really heart-wrenching to, to listen to these stories. And uh, I said, one person mentioned me, you know, sheriffs are pretty pow- proud people. When they're begging for help, you know it's serious. You mentioned the uh, the border wall and, and the call to extend that border wall. Uh, did you, um, when it comes to the border wall, has any of it been taken down under the Biden administration? My understanding, I'm not aware of, of that. What I'm aware of is that they have stopped the construction of the border wall uh, they have also the way the contracts were written for the construction of the border wall is um, because I think the Trump administration tried to push that these get done is that the contractors get paid irrespective of building the wall. Um, so if, if they don't. If, if, so what now the Biden administration is, is said, stop building the wall, even though they're going to the money's going to get spent. So they're just throwing away money. Just the fact that they don't want it because it's so-called Trump's border wall. And we all know that if you, if you play tape of Chuck Schumer, uh, Bill Clinton, others it, 10 years ago, they all talked about the need for a border wall. It was a bipartisan thing, but it was only because Trump embraced the idea that they turned on it. Uh, po- complete partisanship and, and politics at the expense of security of our country. It really, really is awful. I will say the other, ma- the, the other major policy that was changed was um, it, it was the remain in Mexico policy for amnesty or asylum. Uh, you know, uh, before Trump came in, uh, people were just coming over the border, uh, turning themselves into uh, border patrol and saying, I, I want asylum. And then they would say, OK, well, you know, we're overwhelmed for the court hearing. So 
here's an appearance ticket and come back in a year. Yeah, right. They never come back so, because they know uh, they weren't going to get asylum because they didn't meet the criteria. So what the Trump administration did is they negotiated a deal with Mexico to say, somebody wants to get asylum, we will hear that. But in the meantime, you remain in Mexico. And it was a real deterrent because people knew that eventually it would be denied. Well, that had been incredibly ineffective in decreasing the numbers of illegal entries over the last couple of years. Uh, Biden got rid of that. So now people are coming back over. It's the, now it's, what, it's what's commonly known as catch and release. We're having all these people giving appearance tickets and say, come back in a year. Yeah, right. And also now it's so overwhelming that they're not even giving them that. They're just letting them, giving them free pass in the, into the interior of the United States. Um, so uh, this is, uh, we've not seen, I mean, from talking with Border Patrol agents, they said, you know, being in, uh, working here in this role for 20, 25 years, they've never seen anything like it. They are overwhelmed uh, and they are stretching resources and they don't, they don't really know what they do. They're fighting a losing battle at this point in time. So we need to get resources down to them immediately. We need to support them in every way we can as they fight this battle now. But we need to reinstitute policies that were effective. And we have to stop the rhetoric um, that, is, that the Biden administration has been doing for the last year while they were running of open borders, free everything. And Pelosi is doing the same thing up in Congress, we just passed, you know, an amnesty bill up in Congress. It hasn't passed fully and been signed into law. But that message gets out and it's sold down by the cartels and say, look, it's going to be easy. You can get in the border. Come on, pay this $5,000. You can come in now. And that's what we're seeing here. Uh, so, uh, you know, I was honored to be down there. I got taken around with um, Tony Gonzalez, who's a new member of Congress uh, from, from the San Antonio area. Uh, you know, Hispanic himself, and uh, uh, really was a, a really enlightening. Uh, talked to many, many great people who are trying to do good things uh, to keep us safe, not just uh, not just the immediate border, but our entire country. Uh, but uh, we need all hands on deck, and we need responsible uh, leadership in the Biden administration and in Congress, and we're not getting that right now. And Congressman, as you said, I mean, a lot of illegal immigrants, when they cross the border, they don't just stay in Texas, in New Mexico. I mean, they they make their way, and why not make your way to New York State, where now, you know, there's an incentive for, as they call it here in New York State, undocumented citizens. They're going to give the money that was missed when it comes to COVID-19 um, stimulus checks. So would you have a message for those in Albany that just voted that in? Absolutely. I mean, I think it was it's a, it's a, a bad idea uh, at any point, but right now, it just adds to the message of open borders uh, and come on in. It's a free for all. And absolutely, that will be a lure or New York State has always been a lure because they're known to be this way. But it, it, it steps it up even more. And um, yes, they will come because uh, they, they're not going to remain. They want to get out of an environment where they're worried they may get caught. So they're going to be moving up and, uh, uh, you know, that's why, you know, why is MS-13 so prevalent in, in the New York City area? You know, that, and so that will be a lure in and of itself of these, these uh, you know, young uh, people who are going to be the future victims to be drawn into a gang. And, you know, once you get into a gang, you can't get out unless you're going incarcerated or, or die as a result. So it's just, as I said, it's 
a humanitarian crisis as well as a security crisis. So uh, I, you know, I feel feel for these families coming over and the, the environments that they're coming from. I know that, uh, but we are not helping them by doing this. Uh, so we need to get to a point where we make them. If you want asylum and you think you deserve asylum and meet the criteria, we have always been open to people do that. You need to go to the embassy in the country you're from. You don't pay a cartel and try to sneak in the border. It's not the way to do it. But when you send mixed messages like this from the, the, from the, the highest level, uh, from the president of the United States, this is what you're going to get. This, this, is not, this should not be a shock. And I, and I hate to say it, I think some people in, wanted this, wanted this chaos. Um, and uh, uh, so uh, we have a, a big battle to get this under control again. Uh, but I think it's going to be incumbent on us all raising awareness, challenging elected officials on responsible policies, uh, because this is this could get a lot worse. We're you know, from what I heard, uh, as I mentioned, uh, 172,000 illegal entries uh, in March alone, 15 year high. Well, historically, uh, it's the uh, May, June, July, which are the peak months of illegal immigration because of the, the, the weather. Uh, so we're not even just if you're following regular trends at, at the high point. Uh, but with all these changes in laws and, and uh, you know, it, it's just uh, it's a crisis. It's the definition of a, a severe crisis. And um, it, it, it's frustrating. You know, sometimes things are beyond your control and you didn't really do anything to make them happen. They just happened. This is the exact opposite. This is a direct correlation in relation to irresponsible and reckless policy and irresponsible and reckless rhetoric uh, from the Biden administration, from the leadership uh, in Congress. And uh, again, it's, it's co- costing lives. It's costing American lives. It's costing immigrant, illegal immigrant lives, children, et cetera. So, um, um, you know, I, I, I was glad to go. I wish I, uh, you know, saw something different, um, but it was as bad or worse than I had heard. Congressman, I got to ask you before we let you go, as a former state senator, uh, what, what you're seeing here in New York State with restrictions, with the governor still having control over his executive orders and extending that food with drink mandate. Uh, what do you think about especially the businesses in your district with uh, these restrictions being extended for at least another month? Yeah, disappointed. I'm disappointed that the, uh, you know, that the members of the legislature, the Democratic leadership, Again, here's an exist, uh, example of saying one thing and the reality being something that other, uh, uh, something else. Saying that they took back control of their legislative prerogative from the governor and didn't have him continue to run uh, with his executive powers, the executive order powers. But in real- reality, they did nothing. They kept all his executive orders in place and his ability to amend those executive orders, which he's doing right now. So, uh, you know. I think somebody can make the case they shouldn't be paid because they are not really legislating and doing their role as an equal branch of government. Uh, and I also disappointed to what I'm hearing with uh, the reopening of schools, um, that uh, the way they've written this, uh, it sounded good when I first read it, but then they're saying that you cannot open if um, your area is a, uh, in, in a high rate um, of community spread. And there's no data to show that the community spread has any impact on what goes on in the school. Uh, so I believe uh, that the, the data had shown it was very safe to go and open schools. Right now, it looks like we can only own, open 
elementary level of schooling. Um, you know, certainly there's always risks, but I think the risks are much higher for the, uh, ac- the permanent academic, academic damage that we're doing to our children, or the mental health damage we're doing. It's time to open, time to open our schools at all levels. And uh, the legislature should have taken that power back. It's really unfortunate. All right. Congressman Chris Jacobs, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Mark. Congressman Chris Jacobs on his trip to the southern border and also his thoughts on the extension of restrictions here in New York State. When we come back, we will be joined by attorney John Elmore, uh, where he will give us his take on week two of the Derek Chauvin trial here on Hardline. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all-star closer kenley jansen we have a question what's the best podcast of all time Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact. So jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Hardline. My name's Joe Beamer. Brenda Alacy is recovering from surgery, and we hope she uh, has a speedy recovery and is back with us very soon. Joining me this segment is attorney John Elmore to talk about the Derek Chauvin trial, and uh, let's get right into it. John, I I have to be honest. I I thought after the first day of this trial two weeks ago, there was a lot of coverage. All the networks had gone into it. Uh, Do you feel the second week of this trial didn't get the coverage the first week did? You know, I've just been watching the the live feeds of it and and going online and watching uh, YouTube videos of replaying testimony. So I, I have not been checking all the 
all the networks to see what, what is happening. But I can tell you that this incident uh, has nationwide implications. It has changed uh, police reform all across the country. Uh, just last week, Governor Cuomo has issued an executive order requiring all New York State pol- uh, police, uh, state troopers to wear body cams. This week in the state of Maryland, uh, the Maryland legislature overrode a governor's veto and, uh, and, and approved laws uh, concerning police reform. In the city of Buffalo, uh, in reaction to the George Floyd incident, uh, the mayor uh, has just signed an order uh, requiring officers to intervene when they see another officer uh, abusing a, a citizen. So it's had nationwide implications. And that that law uh, with the Buffalo police, that's something that's been uh, called to overturn for some time, right, where a police officer can go and not risk um, any kind of um, pushback by, you know, saying, hey, I saw this officer do this, and it's not right. They're, they're required to intervene now, and that, that uh, goes way back several years involving an incident involving Carrie O'Horn, who was discharged uh, when she was intervening being on a, on a uh, incident. Now, I want to talk about the prosecution week two. Um, and now I have to admit, I've I've been reading up on this a lot. My fiance watches it nonstop. I mean, when she is home, she's got the headline news gavel to gavel. So I, I get a lot of the information of the case from her. Um, but I, I do realize uh, this week, the prosecution, their second week of testimony. And what did we learn in this second week of testimony from the prosecution? Well, what what the prosecution doing is doing is they're undermining uh, the defense. Um, you know, I mean, first of all, this is a case where the blue wall of silence is broken down. You had the Minneapolis police chief, Madeira Areno, uh, testify that the restraint, uh, the knee on the neck that uh, Chauvin used was against and in violation of department policy, uh, that the uh, restraint should have stopped when George Floyd stopped uh, breathing, uh, that he should have made efforts uh, to revive him. Uh, you had the uh, lieutenant, uh, uh, the supervisor uh, of uh, Chauvin, say that uh, that was against police policies, that it was against training. You had a Minneapolis police lieutenant, uh, who's a use of force expert, uh, say that the knee on the neck was wrong, that it, that it broke department policies, rules, regulations, training, and ethics. Uh, so I, I, I thought that the police chief was a highlight, but also Dr. Martin Tolman, who's a national expert, a pulmonologist, who watched the video hundreds of times. He said that a healthy person would have died, regardless if there was fentanyl in their system, uh, that Chauvin had his knee on the neck for two and a half minutes after George Floyd's uh, last breath uh, and that he, he died. Uh, and then he also, in, in slow motion, showed how Chauvin's knee uh, was lifted up from the pavement to apply additional pressure to uh, Floyd's neck uh, when Floyd was handcuffed, no longer resisting, and was complaining that he couldn't breathe. And, and in his opinion, 
the death was not caused by an overdose of fentanyl, but it was caused by asphyxiation uh, from sustained pressure, a deprivation of oxygen uh, that affected the brain and the heart. Uh, devastating testimony. And so what, what the uh, prosecution has done uh, is they've had police experts uh, from Minneapolis, and they brought in a national expert from uh, uh, Los Angeles. They brought in the uh, Hennepin County local um, medical examiner, and then they brought in some outside uh, um, medical examiners as well uh, to talk about the cause of death. So that I believe that the, the wagons are, are circling Derek Chauvin, and uh, the prosecution is doing an excellent, excellent job in proving their case. You know, I thought it was interesting from the defense this week. They played an audio clip of um, something George Floyd was saying. However, the audio clip there was obviously yelling in the background. It was at the scene. And the defense said, did you hear? And then said what they wanted the person on the stand to say, but I heard that audio several times, and you really couldn't make out what George Floyd was saying. Uh, is that the best the defense has? What should we look for once the defense uh, is the one calling witnesses? Well, obviously the defense is going to call their own expert witness on the uh, use of force, and they're going to call their own witness on the um, um, on the cause of death, their own medical examiner who, who looked at things and their, and their defense, as they said in their opening statement, is that uh, Chauvin acted as a reasonable police officer would use under those circumstances and, and that the cause of death uh, was an overdose uh, of fentanyl. They're going to have a very, very difficult time doing that because the prosecution has done an excellent job in undermining those defenses. And then what is really interesting is, is whether Chauvin is going to take the stand. Uh, because if he does take the stand, um, he's risking the prosecution, again, just going over so much stuff that they've gone over in their direct exam, going over uh, all the body cameras, the police surveillance cameras, the cameras, uh, uh, cell phone cameras of the witnesses that were there, and and just having the prosecution prove their case over uh, and over again, um, and and so there's there's a lot of risk involved there. Now we look at this next week. Does is the prosecution still have witnesses to call, or will we start hearing from uh, the Derek Chauvin witnesses? I I think that the prosecution is getting close to wrapping up. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how close there are. they are. Before the week is over, we can expect to hear some defense witnesses. Now, the other police officers that were there, that were seen in the video, standing uh, by while Derek Chauvin had his knee on George Floyd's neck, are they going to be in this case? Will they be used as witnesses for the prosecution, or are they waiting for trials of their own? They, there's no indication that they're going to be called as, as, as witnesses to testify. Uh, if for some reason Chauvin is acquitted, then it'll certainly affect the prosecution's ability to prosecute them because they are accused of aiding and, and abetting in, in, in a homicide. And if Chauvin gets acquitted, um, that's going to certainly um, 
be very difficult for them to prove, and there may be some legal maneuvers that would um, require a judge to dismiss it. In, in your legal opinion, watching the first two weeks, now obviously anything can happen, and, and that's why we have a jury, uh, but with what you've seen from the prosecution, do you see any way that Derek Chauvin is acquitted? Well, I think it would be very difficult. I think the, the prosecution has done a, a very brilliant um, presentation. They're, they're, they're looking at the jury, from looking at the jury's point of view, you have to realize everybody has different personalities. There are people that are conservative on that jury. There are people that are very, very liberal. There are people that maybe are looking for the science, people that are pro-police, uh, people that deal with emotion when they make their decisions. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm just looking at it where they presented the case with the civilians, you know, a nine-year-old girl, a 17-year-old girl, a 16-year-old African-American male, and a martial arts expert, and, and a, a firefighter, off-duty firefighter, all pleading, get your knee off your neck, your, off the neck. That's, that's got to really play to a lot of the people's emotions. Then when you look at the law enforcement people, when you have over and over, you have police officers and experts on the use of force um, citing to the rules and regulations and policies and training saying that this guy violated all of those. Well, then people that are pro-police and really believe in good, good policing have to say that this guy you know, broke all the rules here. And so the emotional people, uh, people that you know, want to just look at the science, uh, there's just such strong scientific evidence. So uh, I, I think that they are looking to try the case. They know who those jurors are because those jurors submitted questionnaires. They were questioned uh, under oath by both sides and the judge. And they understand those jurors' personality types. And they're presenting evidence that I believe will appeal to all of those jurors, regardless of their personality types, their backgrounds, and, and their feelings of uh, policing and, and the, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement. And I know it's difficult to fast forward to when this trial is over, when we finally have a decision. But what do you think, regardless of the outcome, as you said, we already see police reform throughout the country. What do you think the effect of this trial will be uh, on police reform and uh, police relations in the community? Well, you know, I think when you when you see a, a police chief and and some of the best experts in the country testifying about the reasonable use of, of, of force, uh, about the training that police officers should have, and, and, and then just the impact that this trial has had across the country, I think you're going to see police departments across the land um, improving. Uh, I think the blue wall of silence has been a lot of problems uh, in getting bad police officers uh, off the police forces, but you saw the ble- the the you know, from the top up, when the police chief says enough is enough and I'm going to testify uh, against the police officer and the supervisor is, is going to testify and the training expert is going to testify, you're, you're going to see uh, that as a model in, in getting rid of that, that small number of police officers because the majority of them are good. They, they, you know, protect, they serve, they risk their lives every day. You know, all they want to do is go to work and they want to come home. 
But those few that are out there that just get away with things because other police officers are are afraid and the culture says you don't testify against the police officer, you're going to see that to start to break down. And and, um, and, and I think that it's going to be a good thing for society because I, I do believe there's going to be a conviction. John, I know I kept you a little longer than I uh, had said, but before I let you go, anything you wanted to say bef- uh, that I did not ask? Uh, no, just thank you for this opportunity. I appreciate it. And, John, I hope uh, when the trial's over we can catch up again and uh, get the expert analysis. I really appreciate it. Please do. Thank you. Thank you. Attorney John Elmore uh, joining us, talking about the Derek Chauvin trial. And on Friday, Susan Rose and Brian Mazarowski spoke with Mark Remillard, who is covering the case for ABC. Here is that interview. We start in Minneapolis this hour. Powerful testimony in the Derek Chauvin trial from a medical expert. Mark Remillard has been following this uh, trial for the last two weeks. Uh, Can you tell us, Mark, about Dr. Tobin, Dr. Martin Tobin, and what he told jurors? Yeah, uh, he had some very forceful testimony yesterday on behalf of the prosecution. He uh, is a uh, medical expert. He's a doctor, but also a medical expert in in, pulmonary issues as well as critical care and was hired by the prosecution as an expert witness. And uh, he said that he uh, his review of the uh, the video footage and uh, other parts of this case lead him to believe that Floyd died from low levels of oxygen. And he says this damaged Floyd's brain and then caused his heart heart to stop. And he says that there were four main reasons how he concluded that. Uh, he said that Floyd was in the prone position, which means he was on the, uh, you know, laying on his stomach, which can uh, make it more difficult to breathe. He said uh, that he, with his hands behind his back and handcuffed, as we saw in the video, uh, it wasn't just that, but also that the officers were pushing his arms upward into his upper back. And so that would restrict his breathing even more. Then he was sandwiched between the officers and the hard asphalt, particularly on his left side, so he um, was having uh, really restricted his ability to expand his chest and take in air. And then finally, he says, the knee on the neck that was applying pressure to the hypopharynx, which is a part of the neck, a very narrow passageway where air flows through. And he says that that was restricted, and that led to a lack of oxygen that ultimately uh, led to his death. How did the defense try to kind of cast doubt on some of what was said? Uh, it was tough. I, I think it was a, a tough cross-examination. Uh, Dr. Tobin was quite um, uh, sure of his conclusions and was uh, forceful in rejecting theories that were floated by the defense about uh, how he, you know, what what other conclusions could be reached, for example. So. The defense asked him about, uh, you know, uh, the medical examiner's report says that there were no injuries to the neck of George Floyd. Does, would that affect your opinion on the fact that you say his, his neck was compressed? And the doctor was just bluntly was like, no, not at all. I wouldn't expect to see any bruising in his neck because the forces that, can, the forces that are required to restrict your breathing are different than the forces that require bru- bruising. So I wouldn't expect to see that. Then the defense said, well, what about drugs? He had, uh, you know, fentanyl in his system and couldn't that cause low levels of oxygen? And, and the, the doctor said, yes, it could. However, in looking at the video, I was able to determine as you see his chest, George Floyd's chest cavity expand and contract, that his breathing rate was relatively normal, that he calculated a a breathing rate of 22 breaths per minute. He said that's quite normal. But if someone's dying from fentanyl, they have a 
depressed breathing rate. So he said, I would have expected to see something more in the line of about 10 breaths per minute. And so to me, that does not signal uh, fentanyl overdose, the doctor said. So uh, really got out um, quite forcefully against a lot of uh, the defense's cross-examination where they, they weren't so much as challenging him as more trying to float other theories. And he seemed to uh, really push back on those. You know, Mark, it seems also another powerful moment yesterday was the doctor telling jurors to feel their own necks, to feel the cartilage in that. Did the defense raise an objection to that? Um, yeah, so this was, um, so he was talking about, um, the, you know, I think the, the takeaway from this was what he was talking about here was there's an image where, um, from the video, where George Floyd's face is virtually smashed into into the the pavement and what he says is going on here is George Floyd uh, you know is pinned to the ground laying on his the le- his the left side of his face is on the pavement Chauvin's knee is on his neck and in an effort to be able to breathe the doctor says you know Floyd is attempting to turn his head to the left which would bring his face to the pavement but would allow Chauvin's knee to be on the back of Floyd's neck, which, as he was saying, he was telling the jury uh, to, you know, you can feel the back of your neck have, has these very strong um, uh, tendons or muscles in it where he might be able to get some breath. And the objection from the defense was that he was instructing the jury to feel their neck, and um, and the judge says, you can't instruct the jury to do anything. You can uh you can you can hypothetically say it, and if they want to try it, you can do it. But so that was the um, uh, objection from the defense on this. But basically, the doctor was saying Floyd, in an effort to get air, was turning his head to try and get Chauvin's knee off the side of his neck, so he could put it on the back. And as you know, you, as you can probably feel yourself, your the back of your neck is much more durable and less restrictive than the front or side of your neck. Right. Hey, Mark, thanks so much for the update once again. That's Mark Remillard covering the Derek Chauvin trial. And that was from Friday. My thanks to Tiffany Hensby from CTV, Nick Langworthy, GOP chair in New York State, Congressman Chris Jacobs, and Attorney John Elmore. I thank you all for joining me this morning. Don't forget, tomorrow we're back live local Buffalo starting at 5 a.m. with Susan Rose and Brian Mazarowski. And then Brian Mazarowski and Joe Beamer, Beamaz and Beamer from 9 to 10. Bellavia 10 to 2, Bowerly 2 to 6, and Tom Puckett will wrap up your day with Buffalo's evening news 6 to 7. And it's the final week for your chance at $1,000 thanks to the WBEN Spring Stimulus. So be ready tomorrow morning starting at 7 for that code word at the top of the hour from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. for your chance at $1,000. Meet the Press is next. And then as you know, we've changed our schedule here at WBEN from 1 to 4 today. It'll be the best of Mark Levin. Have a great Sunday. We'll be back here tomorrow morning on WBEN.